Hey everyone, this is your host Kevin Jung, and this is the Paragon Project Season 2, Episode 3. I decided to come back and uh, talk more about relationships, healthy relationships, communications, expectations, etc. Because I really do believe that these topics are really important to us, and especially when you're, you know, as I spoke in the last episode, in your early 20s, early 30s. Being introduced to these new types of relationships can be difficult and can be hard. And we do need some guidance and some help in these sort of situations. So I decided that coming back to ThriveWorks was an appropriate measure. And because I'm not very qualified myself to do it, I have another guest here, another counselor. Julie, can you please introduce yourself? I'm Julie Wilcox. I'm an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker. And I currently am in a uh, private practice doing individual, family, and couples work. Perfect. And a lot of the relationship stuff, I feel like it's best to talk to these professionals. And I really want to start off with healthy expectations. All right. Because they're, as we all know, essential in any sort of relationship. So what do you think are healthy expectations to have for your partner? Well, any expectation is fine as long as you're talking about it and on the same page. So we have large expectations that we often talk about. Do we want children? Are we going to be work? Are we going to have a vacation this year? But we often forget to talk about the small things, the day-to-day things. If you say you're going to be home at 5 o'clock, does that mean 5 o'clock on the dot? Does that mean 5.05? Does that mean 5.10? When you walk in the door, are we going to kiss? Are we going to talk? Or are you going to go straight to your room and change clothes? So these are the little expectations that happen all throughout our day that often derail us because we're, we're slowly getting frustrated and agitated that our expectations are not being met when frequently we haven't even voiced them to our partner. I see that it could be very difficult to really voice these very, very like small expectations, as you said, going from, like, are we going to be home at 5, 5 on the dot, or a little later? How do we make a comfortable space so that we could communicate even the smallest expectations to each other so that we wouldn't build up any like personal resentment with our relationships. Absolutely. So it's about talking about it in the moment. Um, so if I'm expecting you home at 5 and you show up at 5.05, start with how I'm feeling, not with, hey, you said you were supposed to be home at 5. We're not starting with an accusatory statement. We're starting with feelings and saying, hey, I, I feel really disappointed, frustrated, or whatever that feeling may be that you were home a few minutes after 5 because I had dinner sitting on the table at 5 or, or whatever the case may be. And so being able to share that with your partner and then tell them what you need. You know, I need you to let me know if you're running 5 or 10 minutes late or I need you to try to give me a more accurate time that you're going to walk in the door or text me when you leave the office, things of that nature, so that we can actually navigate you know, what is going to actually happen between the two of us. And then your partner has the opportunity to say, no, I'm not texting you when I walk out the door, or yeah, that works, that's realistic, or I'll call you when I'm five minutes from the house, or whatever the two of you can navigate together as the compromise so that the expectation is not out there that's not realistic. I like um, how you spoke about starting with the feeling mm-hmm. and then communicating the need. Because I do, I do understand when you're saying, oh, we're quick to say, why aren't you home? 
why didn't you do this yet? I told you to do this yet. But no one's really saying, oh, I kind of feel like this when you when you don't do this. Mm-hmm. And with that, like you can build like an empathetic path between one another and start understanding each other's feelings. And then that can resonate and result in those needs being met. And Absolutely. I really like how you talked about that. And this jumps onto the communication aspect. And I want to go a little bit more into being able to communicate without a lot of conflict. And that goes into the fair fighting rules. I was recently mm-hmm. introduced to this and didn't really understand much about it. Can you please talk about the fair fighting rules and how they are used to limit uh, major conflicts within communications between partners or relationships? Sure. There's a lot of different rules and outlines as far as how to fight, how to resolve conflicts. Fair fighting rules is kind of one common one that a lot of therapists reference. But basically, we want to limit the fight, the argument, to one topic. You know, I'm not going to bring up what you did last week, last month, last year. We're also going to focus on what the issue is. If I feel hurt that you walked in the house five minutes late, you're not going to throw back on me, well, you walked in late yesterday. So it's only about this one situation, this one topic. We also want to take breaks if one person gets over-agitated, overheated, if we start yelling, screaming, or whatever our negative communication patterns are. Um, we also want to make sure that we're not slinging mud, essentially, you know, not any low blows, calling names, uh, putting people down. And we want to make sure we're both tuned in. If someone kind of mentally checks out, or even physically checks out, if someone's walking away from you, there's no point in following them and continuing that argument. So we need to make sure pe- both people are engaged in order to have the argument. I really like how these rules are kind of set and how this is a very common thing that a lot of counselors and therapists are using because it really outlines like uh, what we should do mm-hmm. to not escalate um, the situation and make it even bigger, like Absolutely. one issue at a time. I can imagine seeing people bringing in old stuff. Say, oh, you did this before. You did that before. And that just you're just putting more fuel to the fire. And I really like how you guys are using it. Um, with that... I want to go into another topic within the communications, which is we talked about before the interview having multiple partners. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was the word for that again? Polyamorous. Polyamorous relationships. And um, I want to go into what you do in those uh, situations when uh, couples are discussing polyamorous uh, relationships and uh, how, what you recommend and how they should communicate, what expectations we should have if we're going to get into polyamorous relationships. Um, relationships or even what that really means to Mm -hmm. be in a polyamorous relationship so regardless if we're in a um, same-sex homosexual heterosexual any other form of sexual orientation relationship regardless if we're dating one person if we're committed to one person or if we're seeing multiple people at once there have to be expectations So just like if you're early dating someone and you haven't fully committed with them, if you do decide to be sexually active with them, there should be communication about are we sleeping with other people, what are our, you know, what are we doing to be safe. Same with a poly relationship. If I'm going to be married or committed to one person and have one primary partner, but then I also engage with other partners or we do what often is referred to as swinging, often um, seeing other couples and potentially um, exchanging partners with another couple, 
if we have a threesome, any of these types of activities or any other combination of, of activities, we need to make sure that the rules are clear, the expectations are clear. Um, expectations may be, hey, you can see anyone you want as long as I meet them first. Or they can be, hey, you can see anyone you want as long as I don't know them personally. Um, other people have limits on how long you can have a relationship with another partner if you are the primary. So there's a variety of rules. None are right, none are wrong, as long as they work for that couple. Okay. that's It really goes back and boils down to expectations, mm -hmm. as you talked about earlier, and how that's a very essential part of any relationship, really. And that's like a totally different sector of relationships. And Absolutely. that's even more complicated because we're having uh, one, two, three people in those um, sessions, maybe. When you have those kind of sessions, are there like more than three people in your counseling session? No, typically there is uh, the primary partner, which is oftentimes the, the marital partner uh, that, or the committed person that they are living with who is present. So it's typically there's some sort of conflict between the primary two partners. Mm. And I want to go into, um, let's go step back a little bit and sure. go talk into like healthy relationships in general. Okay. And it, this can go with poly relationships also, but besides like the common well-known uh ideas of what are foundational to healthy relationships such as trust what else do you think are important in relationships so initially um getting to know each other like how well do you know your partner um, some activities that i do with couples who are struggling who have been together for years and years and are suddenly no longer like each other let alone love each other they think um, is get to know each other again. You change constantly, and your partner changes constantly. So do you know who their best friend was when they were five? Do you know their favorite color, their favorite pizza topping? Do you know their biggest fear, their, their hopes and dreams? If they won the lottery tomorrow, what would they do with that money? So all questions that we really want to ask and get to know and spend that time communicating so that we become friends. Um, once you're friends, you need to have fun together. Regardless if you have the same interests or if you can struggle to play tennis and you don't know how with your partner and y'all can laugh and joke about it. Um, we want to do something that we can engage in jointly. Mm. Um, and the more we spend time getting to know and putting effort into our partner, the more they're going to see our commitment to them. And as, increased, as commitment increases, trust increases. If we show things and we're doing things that show we're not committed, that's when the trust decreases. So if I say I'm going to call you and I don't, then you trust me less. Mm. But if I'm, you know, if I say, hey, I was going to buy, you know, this new gadget at the store, but it cost $200 and I know we're saving, so I wanted to call and get, you know, you're okay that it's okay for us to spend this $200, that's showing I'm committed to you, I'm thinking about our joint goals, and you trust me more and, you know, say yes or no regarding that expense. It's, it seems like um, when we think about romantic relationships, we don't really look into, oh, we should be like friends first, like best friends first. And it seems like as you were discussing that, being like a best friend with your romantic partner is like essential. Yes. And is that, I feel like a lot of people don't really think like that actually. Mm -hmm. And what do you have to say in response to that? Like, oh, usually like romantic relationships, you can't really start out as friends or something like that. What, what would be your response to that? So even if you don't start out as friends and then just suddenly the spark starts and you start dating, 
even if you start on a date, blind date or, or set up or whatever that may be, you know, as you are getting to know each other, you should be developing that friendship. And that best friend is the person you want to call if you get fired from a job, if you get a raise, the best news or the worst news, this is the person that you want to reach out to. And that should be how you know this is your best friend. And I really like how um, when we're talking about this, friends, the underlying definition of a romantic relationship comes with friends. And I, I really like how we pointed that out, and I really appreciate you saying that. And that makes me um, want to jump into another idea. So the question is, um, what are some things like your clients do that are really unhealthy for a relationship, but they think are actually really good for a relationship? Mm-hmm. Uh, they they don't share what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, they oftentimes don't want to tell their partner that when they leave dishes on the counter, it, it stresses them out because they think it's nagging. Um, but if you don't tell your partner they've left dishes out, once it's happened five, ten, a hundred times, you're going to explode. You're, you're going to have built up this resentment. Or it may not even be dishes. You may trip over their shoes one time and suddenly you're, you're cursing them out because their shoes were in the floor. Um, so we take that frustration out in other places. Um, sometimes we take it out without even realizing it and we withhold love, affection, either in words or in action. And so making sure we do share things in the moment um, of what is bothering us. Uh, that's a really good idea too, sharing everything in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that can be really difficult. And that goes back to the idea of communication, the fair fighting rules, you know. And how do you create that space, though? How do you, like, initiate that conversation if, let's say, that, that incident happened, like, maybe a, cou- a couple weeks ago? How do you bring it up without sounding like you're, like, accusing them of something? Well, it's all in our approach. Mm-hmm. Um, we often have more courtesy for people we don't know than we do for our own partners. And somehow we're, we're super nice and we hold doors and we pay for dates when we're initially together. And then that courtesy just kind of disappears. You know, we're burping and farting in front of them. We're, we're casual and we're comfortable, which is great. But we forget some of those niceties. We forget to say thank you. We forget to say please. So if you left the dishes on the counter two weeks ago and I haven't said anything before, but it's starting to bother, bother me and I need to bring it up, then it's all in my approach. It's when we're having a good time. It's not when we're stressed about other things. And I can say, hey, babe, I noticed a couple weeks ago you left dishes there for a couple days. And I, you know, again, going back to how you feel, you know, I feel really stressed out when I walk in and see dishes in the morning. Can we come up with a strategy so that I don't keep feeling stressed? Mm. And then give your suggestion. And your suggestion needs to be specific. You know, I don't want to say, like, hey, do the dishes. That's very general. What does that mean? They need to be done before five o'clock. They need to be done. They need to be in the sink. They need to be in the dishwasher. Um, what does exactly it mean to say I need the dishes done or I need you to spend more time with me? All these things are often very general and therefore your partner thinks they're achieving them when in actuality it's not what you are wanting or asking for. Mm. So being as clear as we possibly can, yeah. being as specific. Very specific. And I'm guessing like a, maybe a good amount of clients, when they come with issues and they tell you about it, their partner probably realizes, wow, I didn't know it was this exactly what you wanted. I didn't know like, oh, you wanted me to clean the car every week or something like mm-hmm. that. 
So you actually want everything, interior and exterior. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a really good point, being super specific. I want to go back to that question and take the vice versa of sure. it. So let's say um, I, we talked about how uh, some unhealthy things that a lot of people do that they believe are healthy, let's switch it. What are some healthy things your clients think they are doing but actually aren't? Um, oftentimes it's not sharing information. Mm -hmm. um, and so oftentimes if, especially if we are uh, tempted, attracted to someone else, if we're starting to engage more with someone at work and they are becoming what we often reference as our work spouse or work husband or work wife, we oftentimes can, we have to be open about that with our partner because otherwise we're treading very thin ground and we could be moving towards an emotional or sexual affair. If someone gives us, if we're in the grocery store and someone thinks we're cute, hands us their phone number or flirts with us, we should be sharing that with our partner. Um, oftentimes we want to protect our partner. We don't want to say, oh my gosh, some guy gave me his number today. But in actuality, we need to share that so that we can have a discussion. You know, I felt excited by it, which is normal. You know, I'm flattered. Someone gave me their number. However, I threw it away. I have no intent to do that. Um, however, if I am tempted to call this person, we need to talk about why. What could this person offer me that I'm not getting at home, that I'm missing and I need? Mm, this idea of wanting to protect our partner from information, I feel like it's, that's very common. Like, mm -hmm. we would... It goes back to being specific. We're cutting out specific details to make it softer, yes. to sugarcoat it. Yes. And that's a very good point you're pointing at. Uh, you're pointing that out, and I think this really goes a lot to the audience too. Sometimes when we, even even not romantic relationships, even friends, mm -hmm. we have that expectation, and we're telling them something, but we're just holding some things back because we're afraid they're going to get their feelings hurt. Absolutely. Well, ultimately, um, when we don't share everything, they're going to find out eventually mm -hmm. and their feelings will get, like, they'll feel even worse yes. than, than what you would, they would feel if you were, they were told, like, the first time two weeks ago. And oftentimes you know? we get accused of lying by omitting things. Mm -hmm. um, and omitting information is one form of lying. And so we, we omit information, we change information, um, or we, you know, adjust information to cover up the full truth to protect as well as to avoid getting in trouble if we're worried we're going to get in trouble with our partner mm. complete honesty uh, it seems like complete honesty is the key well, to most relationships and transparency mm -hmm. um th there shouldn't be this wall between what's happening in my day-to-day -day and your day-to-day -day. it shouldn't be weird for me to say hey i stopped and bought a soda today regular conversations about what is going on throughout our day should be occurring so that suddenly my partner doesn't see this long line of charges at Wawa and is like, what's happening? Mm -hmm. Well, I stopped to get sodas. That's my thing. Um, there shouldn't be these things that are kind of hidden, even if they're, they're not intentionally hidden. Mm. And I can only imagine like this is even more difficult in longer distance relationships. Absolutely. And I want to go into that. Uh, the idea of long distance relationships, and as we were talking about communication, being specific. Uh, what do you usually tell your clients who are having uh, difficulty fully like communicating with their partner from long distance? Because it seems like when you're at long distance, it's easier to have those white lies. Mm -hmm. 
and it just builds up. So what do you tell those uh, clients that are in those business relationships? Well, if you're able to, have regular communication. So, you know, obviously in the military and on some, some jobs, that's not going to be uh, able to, you know, talk every night or talk three times a week. It's going to be very sporadic. But the more you communicate throughout the week, uh, the easier it will be to transition back into being with each other when you do come home. And it won't just be this little honeymoon period of, yay, we're together for a weekend, and then we really struggle to integrate back into each other's lives long term. So being able to set up consistent communication time, uh, we have the, the great ability to Skype or FaceTime and all these other devices where we can actually see each other. The more we can actually see each other, the healthier it is as well. You know, I want to see my partner's surroundings know when they say, hey, I'm at a hotel. You know, we want to see what that really looks like. Not that I don't trust my partners at a hotel, but it does give me more reassurance when I can see part of their day to day. Yeah, that's, I can't see that, like, we're missing out on what they're experiencing and that can make us feel left out, mm-hmm. ultimately. And that's really interesting. Also, talking about, like, that honeymoon weekend when we're just visiting and have that little honeymoon for that one weekend. Yes. It's very limited, and, like, we always want to come back, like, oh, I, wish, I miss this person so, so much. I want to see them over and over and over again, but they're just so far away. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about this, this honeymoon phase that, you know, that six to eight month phase when you first start off a relationship. How do you advise uh, a lot of people to maybe like have that honeymoon phase last throughout the relationship? Is that even possible? Or is that like just a social construct Mm -hmm. we have just labeled it as a honeymoon phase? Well, a honeymoon phase is not realistic for most people Mm -hmm. long term. Um, It typically is gone within one to two years at the most. And... I mean, if you think about it realistically, if my honeymoon, I go to Jamaica and I stay at an all-inclusive resort and I'm drinking, you know, Mai Tais every day and eating this amazing food and snorkeling all the time, can I maintain that my whole life? No, I would not be healthy. I would, you know, become an alcoholic or just, you know, gorge myself on these nonstop buffets all the time. We can't live like this all the time. We don't have the money. We don't have a lot of things to go with that. So... This is what we do for brief periods of time. We should have these honeymoon periods throughout our lives where we do escape and indulge and relax. But we also have to pay the bills. We also have to go to the grocery store and have to wipe, wipe children's messes up and all kinds of things. And so we have to figure out how to talk about the day-to-day, but also having fun, having physical contact, having sex, and doing these things that bring us into the more positive, enjoyable part of our life. Mm. This conversation also makes me think about the different ways we show love. You know, mm-hmm. we talked about how sometimes we, we, can, we can't have a honeymoon phase for right. long, long times. So you got to do it once in a while. And that kind of made me thought about, like, love languages. I feel like that's a very common thing a lot of people yes. talk about. The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Mm-hmm. Great book. Um, I encourage many of my couples to read it, um, but, and it applies not only to couples and committed relationships, but it also applies to family members, um, be it your parents, your children as well. And we feel love and receive love very differently than other people do. So if your love language is to be touched and my love language is to talk, I can tell you I love you, you're amazing, you're wonderful all day long. 
but you're not feeling love because you're not receiving it the same way. If I don't touch you at the level you need touching, you feel less love or unloved even. And so we've got to try, I challenge individuals to really try to show your love in your partner's love language at least once a day. And it's not easy because if it doesn't come naturally to you to touch or to speak or, or whatever the language is, it's a very hard task. Mm. So taking that time to uh, discover your partner's values and not fully changing yourself mm -hmm. to fit that person because that's no longer, you're no longer yourself, you're mm -hmm. no longer an individual when you do that. You're, you, but you need to at least accommodate for one of his values. And you said like once a week, I said, oh, this person likes uh, physical touch. Do something involved with physical touch yeah. more often. Yeah. And, and it, it makes me think about mm -hmm. like, if we both have different love languages, um, we shouldn't really fully change and like inherit all our love languages. It'd be, it'd be very hard. But that's like the ideal world, right? Mm -hmm. Where we can accommodate for all their love languages. And it makes me think about like how there are other ways of showing love. Is there really just those five love languages? And is there like other maybe studies or books that talk about other ways we show love? Gary Chapman's the most popular, the most famous, um, you know, and those five love languages do really sum up things as a whole. Um, and they kind of put our life into five categories. But there are also different ways that, that we feel love. Uh, sometimes just uh, getting help around the house or, you know, laughing together, things like that. You could describe that's I'm feeling loved right now. But my guess is he would argue that, well, I can put that in as a love language and I can tell you which one that applies to. So really most things will fall into one of those five love languages in a lot of ways. Um, but we also have the key needs of feeling safe, feeling secure, um, ha having our basic needs met. Safety, security, housing, shelter, um, clothing, food, water, basic needs. And if our partner helps provide that, we often feel love. Um, and so sometimes that can blossom into a romantic love. But if those things are not met, there's going to be conflict, such as in a domestic violence relationship. Some of those things are not always met. Or maybe we stay in a relationship that lacks love because they do provide those basic needs. Mm. So those kind of relationships that don't have those kind of that love but just hit basic needs, is that really a relationship we should really stay in? Because like, you can always find someone else that provides both. Is there ever a case where you recommend a couple to part ways if they are not loved but just getting needs or vice versa? Well, as a therapist, my job is not to recommend you stay together or you separate, mm -hmm. but to help couples really explore what do I really want? You know, am I happy being in a relationship where this person says these things or does these things? If I am, then okay. My role is to help you figure out how to make the best of this life and in, and make it the happiest, most positive relationship possible. However, if you decide, yeah, I, I'm not really happy with this, I don't think this is really what I want, then my role can then be, okay, how do we work to uncouple this relationship the best way possible? Mm. And then oftentimes if children are involved, that, that leads to therapy around separation, divorce, co-parenting, and a lot of other aspects. Mm, there seems to be a lot of 
tasks take uh, if you were to do counseling and also i recommend to my audience if you do need some sort of counseling that it's okay to ask someone for help and they give an unbiased perspective which is very valuable because if you were to ask a friend or someone close to both of you there's a little bit of biases and absolutely that can be dangerous sometimes mm-hmm. i want to jump back a little bit and sure. go into the way we love ourselves because mm-hmm. um the way we love ourselves can really impact the way we love our partner. And I want to ask you this. What does it really mean to love yourself? That means to accept yourself. Um, love is all about acceptance. The good, the bad, the pretty, the ugly. We all have good and bad in us. Um, things we you know, have experienced that we don't like, that we blame ourselves for. Uh, we have guilt about things. But really being able to accept all of this has made me who I am today and I'm going to do the best I can each day. Sometimes it's not much. Other days we're like superheroes. And so we have to figure out how to acknowledge that and just continue to work to make ourselves healthier, happier, better individuals. And this runs into my final question that I love asking all the people I interviewed. Mm -hmm. So a Paragon is a model of excellence. And I named my podcast The Paragon Project because I really want to help people become the model of excellence in their own life. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean to be a Paragon? Or what does someone have to do? Or what characteristic does someone have to embody to be a Paragon in their own life? Oh, love, love yourself. Take care of yourself. That means in all aspects, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, take care of yourself. And that looks different for every person. So find what it is for you that is self-care. Perfect. The idea of looking at yourself, self-evaluating, being self-aware, and then catering to those needs is very important. And I really appreciate this entire conversation going through uh, relationships with other people, with ourselves, and going deeper into some of the other subcategories of communications and other types of relationships. And I really do appreciate this. I know as a counselor, you're very busy with a lot of different clients and your perspective and stories you have are very important and very valuable to the audience. And I hope you guys, uh, when you guys listen, you guys got some sort of value from this. If you do, please uh, message me and tell me what you thought about the episode. And if you feel like this episode could really bring value to someone else, uh, please share it. But to sum this episode up, I really appreciate you guys listening to this episode. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the day.